Alison uh, Ruddock, one of our parishioners. And uh, as we're coming to the end of Mission Month this month, um, I've been um, trying to persuade Alison for a while to come and speak to us about her time in uh, Kurdistan. And so we've been able to manage that today. And part of um, our thinking about that is that God calls us to be Christ's people wherever we are and whatever we're called to do. Uh, and so thank you, Alison, for um, being willing to, to speak to us today. And we've got some uh, wonderful um, slides talking a little bit about your time in Erbil, uh, 2014 to 2017, and a pretty hot time to be there in more ways than one, I think. So um, first of all, just wonder, just for, uh, just for those of us who sometimes get a little bit maybe like me, confused between Iran and Iraq. Mm -hmm. Could you just show us some of the, um, I'll just get the, there we go, all right there. Could you just uh, give us a bit of an idea of just where we are that you were, you spent this time? Okay, so just that right hand one there. Oh, it's not going to do it now, is it? Look, uh, well, Kurdistan is, yeah. um, Get yep. that with you. Yeah, if it's we could just um, do it from the back, it'd be helpful. Kurdistan is the semi-autonomous region of Iraq. It's in northern Iraq, and um, that's Iraq with the circle there. Okay. Oh, and that's we're homing in now on Iraq, and then the next slide is going to show you the Kurdistan region. It's actually ruled by the government in Baghdad, but it is... Um, it has its own parliament, so it is a semi-autonomous region. Um, right. I lived in the yellow part of Erbil. Okay, so that's the capital of Erbil there? It, the capital of Kurdistan. Kurdistan, yeah. right. Okay. So you went there, your brief was to go there as a teacher. So tell us a little bit about what that was like. Okay, so I had been teaching on the international circuit for 15 years, or, well, 15 total, um, I went there for my last three years. Um, that was the school I was teaching at. It was an international baccalaureate school. It was five years old. And I taught grade four children. They were nine and ten-year-olds. And um, so that was my class in uh, August of 2014. And um, so this was a Kurdish school family, typical Kurdish family, uh, some of them, the, the women wore the jilbab, but actually a lot of them didn't. So just, just, just about that, just before we get on to the ISIS bit. Um, so were most of your students Muslim? Yes, they were. Yeah. One or two Christians, it was, it was a um, school set up, um, it was a foundation school by a very wealthy philanthropist who had been born in... Erbil, and he wanted to give back to his people. A lot of the children were on scholarships. Very tolerant school, though. And Kurdistan's a very tolerant country, actually. Okay. So just, so how many of those children were Kurdish as opposed to? Uh, there would have been about 70% Kurdish, and the rest Arabic, with a smattering of Christians, but not right. many. Okay. And, and did you have um, expats there as well? No, no, no expats. No, no, expats. Okay. no because uh, no NGOs or um, governmental workers or Americans were allowed to bring their families to Erbil, so no expat children. Okay, so just tell us a bit about that context of, I think the next, is it going again? Yep, at, at, at ISIS. Just 
Tell us a little bit about what that meant at that time for you. So I was in Japan waiting to go to Erbil and to start school in August. And if you um, remember back in 2014, about um, March, April, ISIS started their rampage. And the dark um, maroon areas on that map show the ISIS-controlled areas. And as you can see, Mosul, um, the arrow is at Mosul, um, that was actually 80 kilometres west of Erbil. It was just over the Kurdish border. Um, so that dark red strip where those arrows are, that was ISIS-controlled area. And they were very close to breaking through the Kurdish border. But the Kurds have a very strong army called the Peshmerga, and they were able to save um, Kurdistan, really. Um, so just tell me what that was like for you at the school. I mean, what was it like in terms of, of safety and what, how free were you to travel around or anything like that? Or? Well, actually, we were very safe in Kurdistan. It was known as a safe haven. It has been known as a safe haven since 2003, really. Um, so I felt very safe. Just prior to my going there, I was in contact with um, colleagues who um, were, and the headmaster, of course, and, and they were actually very nervous. They were very, they were quite terrified that the, the ISIS were going to break through. But of course, when I got there, everything had settled. Because we, we know, um, I think, from uh, news and things, I mean, ISIS obviously did attack Christians. I think there was the, was it the letter N? In, yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, we see Mosul at the top of that um, red um, curve. Uh, so when ISIS um, took over Mosul, they decreed that all the Christians in the area, they had to pay a $700 tax and um, convert to Islam. And if they didn't do that, they were going to be murdered. And so all the Christian families were told to put the letter N which is the Arabic word for Nazarene. It's actually a red, um, sort of a U with a dot in it, that was put on their, um, their doorways. It was a pejorative term for the Christians. And, and basically overnight, all the Christians left um, Erbil. They fled. And, of course, the safest and most close place was Kurdistan. And um, so their homes became the property of Islamic State, they were looted, their valuable possessions, and, and Iraqis and Kurdish people, they don't put money in banks, they have all their money in gold jewellery. So um, I can only imagine how much loot ISIS were able to gather up from these homes. Um, so now, um, after this, there were no Christians left in Mosul. They all fled. And also, all the way down there, um, there were Christian cities, Christian villages, and um, it was exactly the same there. So did, did you have people coming to Erbil as refugees? We did. Shall I move on? So, so um, this is a picture of a Chaldean Catholic church. In Kurdistan, there is a Christian quarter called Ankarwal. As I said, they're very tolerant people. Uh, uh, so Christians were allowed to preach. There were six churches in the, in the um, Christian quarter, and this was one of them. Um, 
so just a little bit of uh, fact. In 1947, there were nearly 5 million Christians in Iraq. And after 2003, with the US-led invasion, it had dwindled to 1.5 million. Now, this is a view inside the church. And this, um, so this church became the grounds for 700 uh, IDPs, which is internally displaced people. Um, this used to contain park benches and gardens. And um, actually, this was considered a five-star camp. It had a library and the children um, were, the emphasis was on educating the children. So this was one of six churches in the Ankwa region, and in 2014, they were sheltering 3,000 IDPs. Um, just tell us what an IDP is, because that's another, we think of refugees, but also... Right, so uh, the difference between a refugee and an IDP is an IDP is an internally displaced person. They have not left their country. They have moved within their country, whereas a refugee, like the Syrian refugees, actually there are a lot of Syrian refugees there. They, have, they come from a different country. And, of course, Syri the refugees get a lot more aid, world aid, than IDPs do. IDPs are a little, IDPs are a little bit glossed over, really, which mm -hmm. is... So, um, so I understand you were able to have a little bit of an... I mean, just imagine if our church grounds were taken over as such. I know. You know, I was thinking of we have our community fund day, but this is a, a long-term reality, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking that the other day, too. So you were able to get a little bit involved with uh, something in relation to those refugees? Yes. So just tell us about um, that. So uh, the school I was at, when people left the school, we'd bundle up their belongings, the, their um, things like their, um, their uh, clothing that they didn't want to take, toiletry, bedding and what have you, and we would um, take those and distribute them to the camps. So um, that's just a picture of my colleague in her little green car and the workers from the church, that church that you saw, um, have come out and they're just helping to gather up the goods. Now, this man on the right is called Father Douglas Albazi. He is a native Iraqi and he was the parish priest of this church and the founder and manager of the refugee camp. Now, I just want to quickly tell you a little bit of background about him because actually now he lives in Manukau City. Well, his, he, he is the parish priest of a church in Manukau City in Auckland. He lives in Papatoetoe. Um, he, in 2006, he was in Baghdad and his church was blown up in front of his eyes. There was a lot of sectarian violence after the US-led invasion. And he was kidnapped. He was bundled into the boot of a car and he was severely tortured for nine days. He had no water or food for four days. He had his teeth hammered out. He had his nose broken. He had his legs shot. He, and um, a Canadian Catholic church paid a ransom of nearly 200,000 to have him released. So now he's in New Zealand and he continues to raise awareness of, of the grave plight of, um, of the Christians in Iraq. And, and so the, he has a congregation, so um, we do have a, a, a certain number of refugees 
from Iraq who have been able to come here, gain refugee status and come here? Yes, we yeah. do, but uh, he thinks that we should be taking a lot more, mm. of course. Right. And yeah. if you want to Google his name, um, there, there's a great YouTube clip on him talking about his, his, his faith under fire, really. Mm. Um, so this is St Peter's Seminary in Kurdistan. Um, as you can see, two-thirds of Iraq's 1.5 million Christians fled the country after the 2003 war. They went to Europe and they went to America, Northern America. So these two priests escaped um, in 2014. There was absolutely nothing from the Christian city of Karakosh, which was just over the Kurdish border, and they found refuge at the seminary. And their um, city of Karakosh, um, of 50,000 people, was completely decimated by ISIS. Okay, so now we're going to move on. I was part of a uh, church. It was called the International Baptist Church in Erbil, and it had a, a, it had a, um, a congregation of, of different people from all over the world. Um, at Christmas time, we had a collection, and we bought woolly mittens and little hats and disposable nappies, and we went to this um, this camp that was just a makeshift camp and we distributed we distributed the um the presents for them. Uh, so you can see there the type of um houses that they lived in, cold, wet and miserable in winter. And one woman was here to say that the only people who care about us are the Christians. And the Bible Society also provided Bibles, so we were able to distribute children's illustrated Bibles. So we're going to move on to the Yazidi population. Uh, as I said, Kurdistan is a very tolerant place, and there are a lot of Yazidis in and around um, Kurdistan. So they made the headlines in 2014, if you maybe can remember, when they fled um, killing and abduction of thousands of men, women and children, and 50,000 of them fled to Mount Sinja, and they were caught on Mount Sinja. They were trapped without water or food or any medical supplies. Um, so eventually a safe passage was formed for their escape, but Hundreds of men and women were killed, and um, young young girls and women were forced to marry ISIS terrorists and become slaves. It was it was shocking, really. Um, this picture was taken at their um, a township called uh, La Leche, where the Yazidis go um, for a pilgrimage. That's a Yazidi girl, she said, you see, she looks just like us. They wear Western clothes, terribly friendly, very open, absolutely wonderful people. And this wee boy, how cute is that? <laughs> they all wear they all wear Western t-shirts. They love Westerners. We were so welcome. They all want their photos taken with you. Very heartwarming. Um, 
So uh, Saddam had a lot of palaces all over. He had a lot of them in, in Kurdistan because, of course, it was it was the place to go for holidays because it was it was cool, cooler in summer and lush and green. Um, so the refugee, the refugees and the internally displaced people, they tended to set up home wherever they could. So of course they'd set up in ruins of um, Saddam's palace. Uh, and similarly, in Erbil, a lot of them um, would set up makeshift homes in abandoned half-built buildings, which were impacted by the 2009 financial crisis. So, uh, and these are the happy little faces of the children who lived in that, um, that building there. So, um, I think that just goes to show that family and love override um, you know, um, crisis in six, some six ways. Six little boys in that small space. It's, uh, I know. <laughs> where they could row through the palace. Yeah. Um, so this is the Doma's Syrian refugee camp, and we were driving along. We came upon this with our drive. We always went with our, um, our Kurdish driver, Haval. And um, this, is, this was, at the time, the largest refugee camp in the Kurdistan region. It had 250,000 Syrian res refugees in it um, in 2017. Um, so not just containers in Christchurch? No, not yeah. just containers in Christchurch, yeah. and I believe there were also tents there. It was huge. It just mm. went back for absolutely miles and miles and miles. Because I suppose we think tents, but, but that has an idea of actually something that is going to be there for longer. I know you've got contacts since you've been back. Do you know what the situation's like now? Well, um, because I knew you'd ask me that question... <laughs> I didn't actually really know, because um, I've been away for three years, but um, I did I did have a look on the internet. And um, so from June of this year, large numbers of the internally displaced people are returning to their homes, um, and they've been motivated by reports that the infrastructure is improving, security's improved, um, explosive devices have been cleared, and um, and however, it's not all as it seems, and they still face incredible challenges, and they have acute humanitarian needs still. So, yeah. And I guess um, so. We still have camps, and COVID, of course, has added into the mix as well. Yes, I'd imagine. Um, I'm not really 100% sure about COVID, but I know that um, it's obviously put mm. a, a great deal of pressure on the comings and goings. Mm. So since 2014, over 2 million Iraqis were displaced in the country. And in 2016, the EU recognised the persecution of Christians by ISIS as genocide by a unanimous vote. So, yeah. Well, thank you for, for sharing some, just, uh, just a capsule, really. It reminds us, too, that the, we're not only talking about Iraqis and Kurds, but also Syrians coming across their, their border. 
um, and reminding too, of course, that this is ongoing. And um, I know we, we have an Anglican church, St George's in Baghdad, uh, where Canon Andrew White was, who's yeah. now back in England. He had to leave. Uh, but we now have an Iraqi um, priest there who's um, in charge of that place, which still has a huge medical centre in dentistry. Um, and I saw the other day, uh, with just with COVID, only about a third of their congregation are able to be at worship currently. So, but they're really wanting to carry on in, in Baghdad as well. Yeah. So we need to to remember them. Absolutely. Just going back and looking back from now I, at those three years, what was your what was your biggest learning from that time for you? Well, there were uh, there were one or two learnings. One was that children are the same the world over. Mm. They are absolutely the same. They've got the same needs and wants, the same habits, the same behaviours, really. Um, also, the fact that it was remarkable, the tolerance in Kurdistan. They accepted Yazidis, they accepted Christians, they accepted people. There were, the Christian quarter in, in Erbil, you could, there were wine shops and bars, and the, nobody battered now that if the Christians were getting a taxi to you know, to the um, German bar to watch the final of the Rugby World Cup or anything like that, which we did um, in my first year there. Um, and also the huge problem of Christians being persecuted in the Middle East. It's, it's just, you know, it tends to get forgotten with all sorts of other problems in the world. But, um, you know, the awareness of that huge problem just needs to be raised. Mm. Yes, and uh, for many, uh, as we've seen with Father Douglas, that um, you know there are many who who are trying to move to other places around the world, and it's good to know that mm. there are um, congregations and and places to welcome them too. But um, very much need to keep them in our prayers and in our hearts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Alison. Thank you for your um, words oh today and the, and the wonderful pictures too. Uh, I'm going to move.